In your Bibles, we're in 1 John. If you'll turn there. And for those of you that were here last week, we got through, it's like five verses. It was pretty amazing. That's not going to happen tonight, okay? <laughs> but that's, it's okay. Um, so we'll, we're starting in chapter two tonight, uh, and, and we'll see what John has, has written for the people and for us as well. And we finished chapter one last week, um, and chapter two is a continuation of John's statements at the end of chapter one regarding the three groups of people that we talked about last week. Uh, the first group, if you remember, was... Uh, John identified them as those who claimed to have fellowship with God while acting as if they, um, they're not sinning. Okay? They, they're trying to keep their sin and have fellowship with God, which is not possible. And John said that those, those people are liars. Uh, they've, they've deceived themselves. And the second group of people that we uh, looked at, John identified them um, as those who said they, they had no sin, meaning that they're, they're not sinning currently, okay? They are not sinning any longer, which we discussed and know to be impossible in the sense of sinless perfection here on the earth, uh, where we Christians can and should be sinning less than the day we got saved. Uh, progressively, as God sanctifies us, we should be sinning less than we were uh, when we became, first became believers, um, Christ, true Christ-likeness for us won't be complete until Christ comes back, until He um, glorifies us with Himself. Um, and we also talked about the fact that that's never an excuse for us to give in to our fleshly appetites for sin. Uh, just because, well, we're still going to struggle with sin, I might as well go ahead and sin. That's the wrong, the wrong attitude to have. But really, for us as Christians, it's to be aware that it is a reality that we need to continue to fight the battle against sin and to continue to confess and, re- and to trust the person and work of Jesus Christ as payment for our sin. Um, and we'll be fleshing that out a little bit more tonight uh, because it's, that is emphasized in what we're looking at. The third group of people that John mentioned last time were those that said um, not only were they not sinning, but they had never sinned. Okay, these are people apparently... Perfect people always, um, and these these examples are all given by John to help us differentiate between true and false believers, uh, true and false conversion, those who are truly in fellowship with God and those who are not. Uh, and it's it's more important that these tests of salvation begin though in each individual claiming fellowship with God. Um, this is about self-examination. This is not so we can go around pointing fingers at people, but we need to turn that finger on ourselves and, and look at ourselves, examine ourselves. And that, the idea of that is not foreign to Christianity. It's not foreign to biblical teaching about the Christian life. Um, Paul called on professors of faith to do so uh, in the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, 
unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. And the, the author of Hebrews repeats this kind of call to self-examination and goes even further to say that believers should also be urging one another to continually examine themselves for the presence of sin so as to not be hardened by sin. Hebrews 3, uh, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the end of chapter 1 was a call to Christians to strive to flee from ongoing sin and a call for the unbeliever to acknowledge their sin and the darkness in which they're walking so that they can repent and believe in the work of Jesus Christ for sinners. And as chapter 1 ends with the reality of ongoing sin in the world, the pursuit of Christ-likeness is a work only begun in born-again believers. Okay? It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, who, who gives us new desires. Um, we have a, a desire now not to sin. We have a desire to please God. We have a desire to fight the sin in our lives. Um, we don't want to sin, but if we do, we must be reminded of the work of Christ on our behalf. And that's what John is writing about until we get into chapter 2. This, this thing that we should remember about being Christians, about being in Christ. Um, let's look at what he says in, in the first six verses, and then we'll have a word of prayer. First uh, John chapter 2, 1 through 6, and we won't be able to get through all of those verses tonight, but I, ju- I do want to read them all. Okay, chapter 2, starting verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, let's open a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for another opportunity as, as believers to come and gather together and to sing and sing praises to you, to open up your word, to hear what you have said, Lord, to discuss those things. Uh, encourage us tonight, Father. Um, teach us tonight. Uh, as Matt prayed, Lord, open our hearts to receive your word, to, to be taught by you. Um, and we love you, Father. We, we thank you for um, the perfection of your word, the effect of your word, and the power of it, Lord. We thank you. And for the work of your spirit within each believer um, that guides us into all truth, we're so grateful, Father, for that is something that we would not have apart from you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's focus on verse 1 for a few minutes here. Um, 
and looking at how John addresses his, his readers, and notice also the, the pastoral tone that he uses as, as he's addressing the people here in regard to, to ongoing sin. Um, again, we see John acknowledging ongoing sin in the Christian life is, is a sad reality, okay? it, but it is a reality nonetheless. And looking at uh, verse 1 there again in chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, so John addresses the people here as my little children. Okay, this isn't a, a snide dig at the people okay, for being infantile or you know, lesser than him, uh, being little children compared to him. That's not what this is about. Okay, he's not propping up his own intellect or anything like that. This really is, uh, the, uh, these are the words of a loving pastor. They're the words of someone who has uh, spent time with these people. Uh, they're the words of a spiritual father um, to those whom he's brought the gospel to and has, has come, seen them come into the fellowship with Christ, partaking in that fellowship with him. They're his children in the sense that he has lovingly instructed them and has raised them up, so to speak, in the faith. Okay, he genuinely cares for these people. This is, a, this is a term of affection, how he's referring to them here. So it's not a dig. We, we should understand this is not that is um, sarcastic even. He, this is a loving way to address the people that he's writing to. And he goes on to express what I think are his, his two main desires for uh, his children in the faith when it comes to sin. And um, this, of course, the things that we look at tonight are not only important for them. They, they were not only important for them, but they're for us as well. Um, and so the first of those desires that John has for them is that the, the truth that he's shared with them, the Word of God that he's been sharing with them, would cause them not to sin. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, what are these things? Well, we already went through chapter one. He's already written some things, okay, and he's writing them so that they will not sin. That's, you know, that, that ridding themselves of ongoing sin would be the focus of their life in Christ. Um, based on the stated truth from chapter 1, specifically verse 9, of the faithfulness of God in having forgiven repentant sinners. Verse 9 said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And like any father, he doesn't want to see his children sin. Um, ongoing sin grieves the holy God that we've been learning about. We spent some time talking about the holiness of God in, in chapter 1. It grieves God. It, it hurts the testimony of Christians to the watching world. When professing Christians sin, it hurts the testimony um, to the world. And it, it brings reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it hinders our relationship with the Father, it hinders our relationship with other believers. We know, if we think about that, we know that's the effect that sin has in our lives. We've all been there. Um, and Christians need a, a biblical mindset about sin in relationship to being in Christ. So I want to look at, look at some things here. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6, 
and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. And looking at this, this mindset that Christians uh, need to have, and, and Paul has written this, and he's been expressing um, the, what Christ has done, the work of Christ on the cross, um, uh, the death that he died, and how that relates to those who come to faith in him. And we get down to verse 11 here, and he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So Paul says the Christian is to consider, and consider themselves dead to sin. This is a mindset and a proper thinking about sin, moving forward from salvation. The Christian is to have confidence that they are no longer slaves to sin as they once were, but are free. Now, that might be hard for us because we know we still struggle with sin, Um, but that's not the same state we were in before salvation in Christ. We were a slave to sin before Christ. Sin was our master. Uh, and that uh, freedom is in Christ. They are now, uh, as he says there, alive to God in Christ Jesus. We must know that uh, is, it's true and we must believe it because God says it's true. Whatever our feelings are or our emotions are about our ongoing sin, if you are in Christ, we have to believe the truth about what that means uh, based on what Christ did for us. I may stumble in sin, but it is no longer my master. Christians have the power and desire to live differently now. So Paul says your attitude should be to, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And the mortal body is, of course, a reference to our flesh. But that includes our minds and our thinking, um, as well as our actions. He continues by saying in verse 13 there, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And the word present... There, he says, present yourselves. And here, this is Paul's way of saying, uh, do not exercise your will by choosing to sin in the body. In other words, this is a decision of the will. To, to present is to offer up something. And in this case, it is our bodies, our actions, our thoughts. Don't offer those things up for sin, for unrighteousness. Christians now have what they never did before, Right? the desire and the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to do otherwise. Before we were slaves of sin, sin was our master. And now though we struggle with sin, it is not our master. We have a new desires, we have a new heart uh, through the new birth. So he says, use your new will, your new desires to be an instrument or tool. I mean, usually when we call someone a tool, that's not a good thing, but Christians should be tools, okay, uh, for God. 
and for righteousness, offering yourself up for doing what is right, walking in the light. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And how does John end uh, the verse we're looking at here tonight in 1 John? We looked at it briefly last week. Okay, we, we touched on this last week because it, it came up and needed to be talked about. But he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Children, please don't sin. Live righteously. But, and this, is, this gets to his second desire. I mentioned he has two desires. This gets to his second desire for them. And this is such good news for them. It's such good news for us as Christians. It needs to be our comfort um, in our struggle against ongoing sin. He says that, and when he says here, anyone in that passage, if anyone does, the anyone that he mentions there is, is a reference to believers. Okay, if any believer sins, remember this, and this is a balm for our soul. That's what this is meant to be. And here it is. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay? His second desire for them here is that, that they would remember this. Remember, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is your advocate. We talked about, like I said, we talked about it last week. But I want to unpack it a bit more this week. Uh, that, that Jesus is interceding for us as our advocate. And the word that John used here means one who comes alongside, okay, as an advocate, is one who comes alongside. And these are legal terms. It, it has, a, has a courtroom in view. Christ is the public defender of his children, not because they paid him a fee, but he became the advocate through repentance and faith of sinners. Okay, so a couple of questions, or a question for now. Why? Why do we need an advocate? This is open to anyone. Why, why do we need an advocate? Why can we not do this on our own? We're sinful, okay? Okay, we have to have a, a pure intermediary, okay? Which automatically excludes us, right? <laughs> yeah, we need an advocate. Um, I spent the last three years of my time in law enforcement working in the courthouse, and so I had a front row seat to a lot of um, trials and hearings of all, all different sorts. And sometimes there were cases that were called improper cases, and, and that's short for the Latin in propria persona, okay, which I didn't understand at the time, um, but it means for oneself. Okay, and those kind of cases are where the defendant wants to represent himself in court. He doesn't want an attorney. Okay, you, you can almost hear, I mean, I can remember it. You can almost hear the sighing and, and see the rolling of the eyes of all the other attorneys and court staff in the room every time someone says that they're going to represent themselves. Um, it, it's such a bad idea that the, judge, the judges are required to warn them about this decision. Okay, uh, and they give them all kinds of reasons why they should not represent themselves uh, in their in their own trial. And I think you know people try this because um, they've come to believe they can handle it. They they are their own best advocate, right? They know everything. They think they can do this, and most likely they're convinced by their cellmate 
okay, who, who's become an expert in, in court trials by spending his life going back and forth from the jail to the courthouse. Um, you know, he, he knows all this because of his excessive criminal activity. And so people get emboldened to, to handle this themselves. But the defendant needs an attorney. There are multiple reasons why they should not do this. Um, they need an attorney who's trained, who knows the law, who knows the rules of the court, who knows the rules of evidence, uh, trial procedures, and everything else essential to having a successful, fair trial and not driving jurors and everyone else insane because they have to have their hand held through everything. Uh, but So it was kind of an interesting thing, but it was never a good idea. I never saw it work out well for people. Um, and just like people standing before the throne of judgment without Christ, okay, they're, they're not qualified. They're, they need an advocate, and that is Jesus Christ. So that brings up another question. Why, why is Jesus qualified to be our advocate? I can, if I have an attorney for my court trial, I know. I, I hire them. They've gone to school. They're trained. They're, they're qualified because of all the training that they've received. But why is Christ qualified to be our advocate. Okay. Right, he already paid it at the cross. That that is one of the ways that he is qualified to be our advocate. Somebody else? Okay. Excellent. He knows all the requirements of law, and not only that, he's fulfilled them, right? For sure. You know, the Bible calls Jesus our great high priest. And, and think of that sort of as a, as a synonymous with advocate for the moment. Uh, and look at what the author of Hebrews says about why uh, we can be confident. Okay, Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's look at another passage in Hebrews. If you turn there, Hebrews chapter 7. Following along this theme... Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 23 through 28, and again, think about, as we read this, think about why he's qualified. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. Okay, and the author of Hebrews here is, again, writing, there's a comparison between the priests under the old covenant and all the work that they did, and he's, there's a comparison here between them and Christ, Okay. Verse 23, the former priests, many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those 
high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So why is he qualified? Well, Christ is our permanent high priest, verse 24. He always lives to make intercession, verse 25. He fits this role because he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, verse 26. He offers himself, verse 27. And he is the son appointed and made perfect forever, verse 28. Okay, these, these are qualifications. He is our advocate. He can be our advocate because of these qualifications. Christ, our advocate, is qualified. And he's the only one qualified to be our defender. Now, Christ, we have to remember, Christ is not paying for our sin over and over again every time we sin. Okay, the Scripture says in several places that he did this once for all. For example, 1 Peter 3.18 is one of those places. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Is all this not good news? That's the point John's making here, right? Little children, remember the truth about your advocate. He redeemed you. He adopted you. He's working in you. And this advocate, uh, this defender, something is really important about him. He never loses a case. Okay? Think this way about him and be anchored in your faith. That's the, the exhortation here to the people from John. He wants them to remember this. Moving on, John gives the ultimate reason why Jesus is qualified and what gives him the ability to stand for us. And look at the first part of verse 2, if you would. First uh, John 2, 2, the first part. He is the propitiation for our sins. I want to spend a little time there. He is the propitiation for our sins. This is a, it's a big word. And I don't mean a big word in the sense of it has a lot of letters, but it, it does have a lot of letters, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a big word. It's a powerful word that we don't really hear a whole lot. And when was the last time you used that in a sentence in conversation? I, you don't, okay? Uh, it, it's not used outside of Christian circles that I've ever heard. I mean, I'm not saying it never has. I just, I've never heard it. And even within Christian circles, we, don't, we really don't hear it that often. Um, and it's used, I was looking at this, it's used four times in the New Testament in the ESV version, which, which is what I use. Four times in the New Testament. And, and the word is only used in regard to Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. Okay? And the word means appeasement or satisfaction. So think about that as we, as we talk about this word, this propitiation. So this is what Christ is, according to John. He is the appeasement or the satisfaction for our sins. For our sins. In other words, he is the appeasement so that our sins can be forgiven. 
Okay, so the natural question is, what or who needs to be appeased? Okay, so my question to you then is, is our Heavenly Father an angry God? Yes, He is an angry God. Do you ever think of Him that way? Do you ever think of God as an angry God? We don't often think, think of God in that way as Christians, but we should understand Biblically speaking, he is an angry God. Just the phrase, anger of the Lord, that appears 755 times in the ESV. That's just that phrase. That's not including all the mentions of wrath and, and other things that, that are equivalent to that. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And Romans 2.5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on, a day, uh, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Not only is God angry, he's, but sinners are storing up wrath. It's piling up. And the Bible's jammed full of descriptions of God as burning hot with anger and wrath his wrath, and being indignant. Why? Sin, ungodliness, unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed. This anger and wrath over sin will be appeased. It, it will be appeased. This is God's warning all throughout Scripture, isn't it? The wrath of God is coming. It will be appeased in one of two ways. His wrath will be poured out on every unrepentant sinner, and they'll spend an eternity appeasing God's wrath in hell because their suffering will never satisfy that wrath. Or, for those who have repented, put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ, they can enter God's rest and are at peace with Him. Why? Because, because God's wrath was poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ, on their behalf. And Jesus suffered and died, taking on the wrath meant for sinners, thereby satisfying the requirement of the law that sin must be punished, right? It says, for the wages of sin is death. Amen. This is what it means that Jesus is the propitiation. He is the satisfying of the wrath of God. Because while he did not sin himself, Jesus became sin for us, as somebody mentioned earlier. He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's right. That is, that is the best news. Christ was our substitute. And John is telling the people this. He's using that word and telling the people, think this way. Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. He, he became a man so that he could stand in our place and be our representative 
the one who actually fulfilled all the law of God on our behalf, as was mentioned earlier. Okay? And, and through his own blood, because blood is required. Because that blood is required, he, Romans 3.25 says, It was Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3.25. And also notice there that Jesus as the propitiation is only received or enjoyed by those who come in faith. Christ's work on the cross is useless for anyone else. As John says, he is the propitiation. There is no other. There is no person that will be able to represent themselves before God and satisfy the wrath of God and then enter his rest. It it won't happen. And that's that's a terrifying thought for the unbeliever. The doctrine of Christ as the propitiation is central and critical to true biblical Christianity. If you take away Christ's words, the propitiation for sins, then you take away salvation itself and all hope is gone. If Christ is not the propitiation for our sins, there's no hope. There's no hope at all. You know, we sang a song earlier in Christ alone, and that second verse, you know, fits really well with this. And it's important, I think, that we, as we study the Scriptures, as we sing songs that are right out of the Scriptures, that you recognize these things. The song we sang doesn't have the word propitiation in it, but listen to verse 2. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Good news, right? So as you sing these songs, think about that. Think about this. You can, as you sing that, think propitiation. That's what that means. That's what Jesus did for me. He took my place. He satisfied the wrath of God for me, right? And the Bible describes Christ's work as the greatest act of love toward the unrighteous sinners whom God is saving. And this one doctrine alone of of Jesus as the propitiation should, it really should be the source of never-ending praise from our lips uh, toward God. It truly is love like unlike any other. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater love than that. And the last verse I have is also from 1 John. It's later on in chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's what John is after here when he's writing to the church, to his spiritual children. Yes, they're going to sin. But when you sin, 
you have an advocate. Christ Jesus, who? The righteous. And he is our propitiation for sins. Um, it, it is, it's an amazing thing, and it's something that he is writing to them to be an encouragement to them. Not an encouragement to go sin because we have this. Hey, I'm okay. I got an advocate. That's the wrong attitude. That, that would, I think, uh, portray something else in you. Perhaps you are not truly a believer if you can think that way, right? Believers will sin, but we hate that sin, especially as we think about Christ and his sacrifice and the fact that he satisfied the rod on my behalf. Uh, and that's what John wanted to encourage the people with um, there. So we're, we're out of time for tonight. We'll stop there. So we'll pick it up uh, next time from there. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for tonight. What an amazing word we have from your scriptures tonight, Lord, that a reminder as Christians, and we know, Father, that we, our sins are forgiven in Christ. We know that we still struggle with sin. And I pray, Father, that our, our focus, our desire in life would be Christ-likeness. And through your spirit, you would help us in that area, Lord, that we would continually be putting off the old and putting on the new, that we would put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness as we strive for for Christ-likeness. And Father, we thank you that when we sin, we have an advocate, Christ Jesus. He's our advocate because he is righteous, and he is interceding for us forever. We thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that Though you are an angry God, angry at sin, your wrath burns hot at sin. Even in the midst of that, you sent your Son to be the appeasement for that, Lord, to satisfy your wrath for all those who would believe in Him. And we thank you for that. We want to bring glory and honor to you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.